Welcome to the Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we're at the ArcLight Summit in Dallas, Texas. ArcLight is a new event for the lighting community. You can fly in, you can drive on over, but it's here to create new perspectives, to provide a bigger voice to some people that aren't necessarily out there on the stage sharing their thoughts. And today, I'm lucky enough to have the opportunity to be joined by five amazing people who have a passion around not only lighting, but sustainability and lighting in this entire industry and how it all happens. I'm joined by Melissa Mattis, Senior Lighting Designer from Slade and Feinstein, Karen Jess Lindsley, CEO of Lindsley Lighting, John Pendorf, the Senior Associate and Sustainability Leader at Perkins & Will, Reiko Kagwa, Principal at Slade and Feinstein, and Jane White, President of Fine Light. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. How are you doing? We're doing great. Great, thank you. Doing good. Happy to be here. So I know we're all here at ArcLight and we're here to talk today about sustainability. This is actually a conversation that you're going to get to share with the attendees of the conference later today. What's it been like for you to be a part of this conference and join it. It's the first time it's ever happened. I think that it's been an incredible experience for us because we all have a passion for finding a voice for sustainability in lighting. And this is something that hasn't been on a national stage. And so we're excited to be able to bring this topic forward. It's definitely an exciting opportunity to bring this topic forward. Before we dive into everything today and we talk about what it is you're going to be sharing with everyone and really how sustainability is something that's been curated not only as a word but an opportunity and a means for design. Let's hear a little bit from all of you. Who are you and how did each one of you get your start in lighting? My name is John Pendorf and I am not a lighting designer. I'm an architect. I've been practicing for about 21 years now and I work for Perkins and Will in Washington DC where I do a lot of commercial interiors work and consult internal on a lot of projects for sustainability. I've always been passionate about lighting as a non-lighting designer in the way that it brings together both the natural daylighting and artificial lighting in ways that can enhance the human experience inside of buildings. There's a lot of beauty in lighting that I think we can focus on when we complement it with the natural and sort of blend it as one design experience for our occupants and our end users. And Sustainability plays a huge role in that. So I'm very passionate about bringing to the table conversations, not just about things like energy efficiency and lighting, but also responsible supply chain issues and how owners can actually tell the story of the sustainability of their space. This is Reiko Kagawa. I am lighting designer and I'm principal at Slade and Feinstein Lighting. What draw me to lighting is I had passion in architecture and that's what I had a lot of passion to it but it was really hard for me as a woman to really do what I felt passion of and when I saw the opportunity in lighting that like lighting as a really powerful tool I can really make a change in the human experience in the built environment which I still have really big passion on so that's what brought me to lighting. I'm Melissa Mattis, and I kind of stumbled into lighting. I was studying interior architecture at Suffolk University, and my professor at the time, Josh Feinstein, he roped me in, was you know offering me a position, and I've always had a strong sensitivity to it, and it felt like a natural kind of step for me, and, and then I never left. I'm still here. 
Hi, I'm Karen Jess Lindsley. I came into lighting sort of through a back door. My husband and business partner, Alan, started out life as an architect and then evolved into becoming a lighting designer. And I have a background in brand development and strategy. And I would see him create these really beautiful fixtures. And I thought, there's got to be a business here. Um, so we decided to join forces and to create Lindsley Lighting. But what really drew me into lighting was the opportunity to make a difference. So we started out as a mission-driven company that focused on sustainability before we had ever designed a single fixture for our line. And I'm Jane White, I'm president of Fine Light. I, like Melissa, stumbled into lighting, it came from me. I answered a newspaper ad in the San Francisco Chronicle for peerless lighting more than 30 years ago. And I was gonna do it for eh, six months, maybe two years. And I don't even, I can't even count how many years later I got to be inspired by luminaries like Terry Clark and Doug Hurst, who had such an incredible vision for lighting. And my passion has been taking big ideas and breaking them down into actionable pieces, taking a vision and making it real. Well, it sounds like everybody here has come from somewhat of a different walk of life, but you've all found lighting because you agree that it has an opportunity to make a difference. And not only does it have an opportunity to make a difference, but there's maybe a better way to make a difference. And that's focused around sustainability. Before I dive into that, I want to talk just a little bit about what we all do with these lights all the time. The built environment is one of the primary primary places, exterior, outdoor environments being the other that really electric artificial light is placed. Today we're going to focus on what it means to manufacture and put products into a space and how you can design with that as well. Break down just a little bit for me. Buildings are for people. What does it mean to create a building, something that's comfortable, something that will last, one that promotes our ability to do what we need to do, you know, live in it and do good, not be harmed by the space that we're in. So just like we have information about our food, like from food labels, we as designers want to see the same kind of transparency with our building products and materials. So we want to have the same insight into the materials that we spend most of our time around inside of buildings. So to be able to make choices um, so that we can create healthy spaces and um, just like we would do the same like for our bodies. I think there's just a general interest by the public right now in understanding that nutritional information that we have come to expect with food and there's a lot of expectation now on design teams to create healthy spaces and create spaces that are not only not doing more harm but actually doing some good for both the occupants and the environment and we're living in an era of big data so we have the ability to measure all these premises and actually deliver on it and then fine tune it. And I think people are just coming to expect it now. When you say that we're living in an era of big data where we can measure and fine tune it, how does that play into the world of building that better, more sustainable system? We can measure things like energy use really easily with energy meters and we can fine tune the way the building actually operates, but we can now also measure how different qualities of light and different amounts of light actually make people more productive or alert, increase test scores for students. There's a lot of ways that we can actually measure and then improve on the interior environment that we're creating by fine-tuning the way the building runs, the way the building operates, and it all starts with the design process and the products that we 
put into the building and then having this ability to continually measure and hopefully produce the data publicly so we can actually show the improvements that we're making on people's lives as they interact with our buildings. We've got two groups of people here sitting at the table today. One is primarily uh, in the design world, the other is in the manufacturing space. And from a design perspective, sustainability really can be boiled down to, you know, operational efficiency, how much energy is used, and a few other key factors. On the manufacturing side of things, it's a bit different. It's how do you put things together? Where do you source your materials from? Talk to me a little bit about that. For Fine Light, it's been about figuring not only the type of products we make, you know, long life, making sure that they are repairable, that they are, they have the sustainability, the energy efficiency built in. So it's what we make, but it's also how we make it. So when we started Lindsley Lighting 10 years ago, LEDs were just coming on the market and everybody thought, wow, we've done what we can to improve the environment because we've created such an incredibly energy efficient light source. But we saw an opportunity to dive into sustainable manufacturing, but there wasn't any roadmap. I mean, we had no, we, we, we had to make this up as we, we went. It was sort of like bolting the wings onto the airplane as we're taxiing down the runway. So, you know, first we looked at, are there any standards in the US? So we had to look to Europe because we didn't have anything. So we found Rojas. And so we said, okay, we'll, we'll make sure that all our parts are Rojas compliant. And then we took a look at the design side and we said, well, let's focus on a design style that can withstand the test of time because so many fixtures are of a time. And so they get replaced frequently. So if you have something which we focused on modernism, simple, classic, timeless, elegant designs that would withstand the test of time, we thought that was another way that we could address sustainability. And then the third way we looked at it is minimalism. You know, how could we use the smallest number of materials so that we were minimize our impact? And then we said, all right, so where are we going to source this? And we decided, well, if we... I used to work in container transportation, and I know the carbon footprint of bringing things across the ocean. So I said, all right, let's develop an ecosystem that's based in the United States so that we can minimize our carbon footprint. But at the same time, we also found that that gave us a lot of reliability and a lot of flexibility, and we had a greater sense of partnership with the suppliers that we worked with. So it's actually ended up building. And now we're, we're moving into a whole new stage where we're looking at declare labels and other forms of third-party verification. So it's an evolving process. A lot of what you all have just spoken about is inherently, I would argue, baked into your practice. Whether you're a manufacturer or a designer, this is just a way you think, this is a way you operate, this is a way you do things. People may be able to coin this as sustainability, and I want to dive into that a little bit more because it's a buzzword to some people, but to you all, it's just a way of doing things. What does it mean in your minds, in your thoughts, to truly, if you may share, what does it mean to be sustainable? I mean, just as a human being, and as Karen mentioned, your carbon footprint how you get to work every day in the context of the built environment in terms of whether you're experiencing it or designing for it and then of course let's talk about lighting i mean why can sustainability and lighting potentially be a, a leader in this entire initiative sustainable design has so many different faces to it it can be interpreted in so many different ways and as long as i almost remember what all my practice the sustainable design was always a key part of it but it evolved so much from the time when I started it, it was all about driving the energy usage to go down. And it was almost sustainable design equals to treating the environment more as an organism. 
But now it's not just that, but also the accessibility of the people who is inside the building, who also then the organization, the design itself to last. And I think it's difficult to like we have the big word of the sustainable design to cover all of this, but it's a all evolving, but also like all working towards that same big goal of like a good holistic design that we cannot have missing piece we have to like put all puzzles together yeah i think that's a really good point rico about the complexity that we see behind the word sustainability at this point in the ies i'm one of the co-chairs of the ies sustainability committee and there's so many different topics that we could cover under sustainability we're working on revising the lp 1020 document right now that's supposed to be a leading document for sustainability and lighting and it's overwhelming to think of like how much information we can cover so there's a lot of different committees that cover a lot of different things like dark sky and energy efficiency and and whatnot. What we've chosen to focus on in the committee is the life cycle of the luminaire and how that relates back to the design process. It's quite a broad subject. It's very much a broad subject. John, when you look at it, Perkins and Will on, on the side of, you know, sustainability in the entire belt environment, how do you view lighting as coming into that equation? I think also tagging on to some of these previous comments that the term sustainable is almost the wrong term now because sustainability means to really to maintain possibly even the status quo. And we've all gotten to a point, those of us who are deep in to sustainability know that we can't maintain the status quo anymore. So we come at it from a holistic perspective. We've actually rebranded ourselves internally to no longer call ourselves sustainability leaders. We're now living design leaders because there's so many different aspects. There's resilience, there's true energy efficiency, there's equity. And one area that I'm focusing on right now is reduction in embodied carbon. And that's an area where we can work with the lighting industry to understand some of the supply chain impacts on the products that we select to understand better how much carbon is released into the atmosphere from one product. Like what does that product represent in terms of how many tons of carbon and how can we as specifiers or designers make better informed choices about which products we're specifying to reduce the overall embodied carbon on our projects in addition to energy efficiency and water efficiency and healthy materials. I know that from a standpoint of products, we have two representatives of the manufacturing community and I might ask to everyone, you know, what's driving all of this? And the manufacturers, I think it goes without saying it's the need of the design community. And before I let you dive us into that, I just want a little bit of color on who's driving the design community to do this? Is it the community itself? Is it ownership? Is it a bigger force from outside of design in general? A lot of the drive comes from clients, of course, but it's sometimes knowing is very powerful and sometimes they don't know that the clients don't know that what is possible. Often what we like to do is to share the idea what we can do and what we can do better. And then by sharing that and then trying to find a common ground with the clients, now clients start to see the value in the different aspects of the sustainable design. Then we kind of start being able to evaluate the same goal while they are driving the big idea but we as a lighting designer, we lighting specifier have a really unique role of being in between architects and clients driving the big idea of going for the better and manufacturer needs to know what needed to be supplied. So we are the bridge between the architects 
the architectural design team who is trying to like get to the next level of the design, the built environment, and we have to communicate with the manufacturer like this is the information we need, and actually what's going to be available, what's going to be valuable for this next goal. And you know, there are so many pieces that's coming together to make the say life cycle analysis to happen. So we are really trying to be like get everybody to turn to the same. Direction, so that we can all run to the same direction. It's really collective effort. When you think about getting everybody to turn in the same direction, it takes a village, right? It takes many people bonded together that are essentially peers across an industry, and then supporters. When you look at the manufacturing side of things, how can you best support these initiatives? I think we're in early days in terms of the embodied carbon. Now you have very energy efficient fixtures; they've kind of hit their maximum. We're integrating controls more intelligently. Than we did. The controls aren't controlling us; we're controlling the controls, which is a much better approach to the occupant for sure. But what we need to pioneer now is what kind of materials can we use other than aluminum and steel to create luminaires, and and how can we take the least recycled material, which is plastic bottles right now, and use them to 3D print components for our fixtures? So it really is rethinking. The luminaire from the inside out, and trying to come up with the kinds of materials that are going to take less embodied carbon. I think lighting is behind in this initiative. If you look at other interior components, flooring, furniture, other things that go into that same space, they are a decade ahead of us in thinking about this, and it's time that lighting caught up. I want to dive into the sustainability initiatives behind both of your practices in manufacturing and design a little bit more. I also want to talk about. A couple of things that have already kind of been put in place, and whether or not they're on the right path or not. But let's take a quick break, and when we come back after our water, after our coffee, we'll talk a little bit more. Sound good? Sounds, Sounds good. good. Sounds great. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, the Light Pod is brought to you by Lada, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. They bring you things like this podcast, and of course, a bunch of fun, short, and informative videos that talk about light, that celebrate light, that document it, and maybe even show you a cool new thing or two. Check them out. That's lytei.com. And welcome back. Over the break, we were diving into our coffee break and our water break a little bit more, and we were talking about how sustainability is so much more than just that word. How it's a way of considering how to put everything into a space. It's not only you know what it's made of or how it's made, but how much. Carbon, it's capturing. Where does it ship? How does it get from point A to point B? What's in the box? What's around the box? Break down a little bit for me as a group. How does what you're driving towards this opportunity to kind of change the way of thinking in terms of what we're putting into our buildings and how it's getting there affect both design and manufacturing? When it comes to design, we have a great opportunity. I try to coach my clients. To understand that at the end of the day, their space is a physical manifestation of their values, and what 
goes into that space reflects on them. So we start asking the right questions, the tough questions. What is it made of? Where does it come from? And these all relate to the different aspects of sustainability, supply chain issues, embodied carbon, recyclability, end of life use, like what happens to a product when either it's no longer usable or when the space is vacated. And sustainability as a whole can become a bit of a carrot or a stick. It's when the client is on board and they have values and goals that relate to sustainability, it becomes something that is a driver for the project. It becomes part of the vision statement for the project and it impacts the entire team. Then we can work with our lighting designers and all of the other consultants to, as Reiko said earlier, everybody facing the right direction. Everybody's heading in the right direction. Those clients that don't carry a specific sustainability goal, more and more common, it's becoming a stick in that it's becoming code compliance. There are so many jurisdictions around the country where some level of LEED certification is now compliance or the International Green Code or the Energy Conservation Code is what ends up driving the sustainability on the project. So there's sort of a crossroads at the beginning of a project of whether this is gonna become a driver and a goal or this is gonna become where we wanna do more than just the code compliant minimum. And I think there's an evolution that has happened with sustainability. 20 years ago, nobody knew what LEED was, and you were submitting LEED certification and paper copies and binders and things like that, which itself is not sustainable. Now, it's come to a point where in the Washington Post, they don't even spell out what LEED stands for anymore because society has learned a little bit about it. And there's at least some level of understanding. So kind of going back to what I said earlier, we live in an era of big data and the data is accessible. So we as a design team have to ask a lot more challenging questions, look for certifications, look for environmental product declarations, things like that. And we have to work closer with our design team members to have everybody facing in that same direction and heading toward that common goal. Right. I would piggyback off that and saying it's not just closer with the design team, but also with our manufacturers. So getting our hands on the information that we know that we need. It's tricky, especially in lighting right now, because we're just not there yet. So one of the things that we're doing in our office is asking a lot of questions of our reps. We love when a rep comes in and tells us about their stance on material health, because it's not always part of the conversation. So it's A, getting our hands on that information, and then also finding a way to work that into our existing workflow because it's not like we're adding a lot of budget just because we're doing something sustainable. So we have to find really efficient ways to make that happen. We've been working in our office with a lighting search engine and a group of people at Mindful Materials to come up with a way to easily get our hands on that information. So adding those search filters to the databases for lighting product that already exist. So just that we can have an easier way to work that into the workflows that already are in our practice. And what are some of those things things that you want to dive into that you want to have? What information are you looking for? Which products have EPDs, HPDs, Declare labels, Living Product Challenge labels, who are just companies, more information about their impact on climate and human health? I think that's a great point because I think as we look at sustainability more holistically, it becomes more about the supply chain and not just materiality, but equity and justice. Somebody recently, we were talking about embodied carbon and justice, and we, we talked about coining the term embodied justice, because that is really at the end of the day, if you can have a product that can demonstrate transparency, even if it's not perfect, the fact that it's actually reporting out and trying to do better and recognizing where it might be falling short a little bit and willing to do more. As a designer, I'm more interested in having a dialogue with that manufacturer and understanding what's going on. I think that it's really important that we look at a broad view of what it means to be sustainable. What I don't want to see us do is go down a road where 
we are, because declare labels and EPD, et cetera, are all focused on product. So we could end up with manufacturers who really don't have a belief in sustainability. They don't have sustainable practices, but they can produce a product that checks all the boxes. And what we wanna see is a wholesale shift so that our entire industry develops sustainable manufacturing practices, as well as practices that support sustainability of employees and how people are treated. I think that sustainability has to be about people, it has to be about product. It also needs to be about money. So, you know, you want companies that are financially stable are gonna be around a long time. That's part of sustainability. You also want to make sure that sustainability isn't something that we always feel like we have to pay a premium for. So we need to have pricing for sustainable products that puts them at market pricing, not where there's a sustainability premium. And I think that everybody just assumes, oh no, if I have a project that we put sustainable products on, it's gonna cost more and it shouldn't. And we need to bake that into the way we think, and we need to promote that throughout our industry. Right, like finding ways to make that the new norm. Exactly. Yeah, I think we spoke a little bit about this as we were preparing, but the idea that we're passionate about sustainable manufacturing, not because we think it's the next competitive advantage. We're willing to do the research and the slogging through the information, and we want to share it. We think if we go back, what we're really trying to combat is climate change. We haven't said it. But if we don't take this seriously in our buildings and our products, then we're just folding into this existing problem. We're exacerbating it. So we see sustainability not as a destination, but very much as a journey that we have to continually, you know, just like lean manufacturing. That's a real, that is a buzzword where it's continual process improvement. We have to think that way about sustainability because Well and LEED are doing fantastic things. But if we just try to map to their expectations versus pushing it further, we're not going to make the same progress that the other elements of the building are. I completely agree. I think that we need to look at future generations. I mean, in my lifetime, I live in California. We never had a fire season. Now it's become commonplace. We have fire season. That's not okay. There are other parts of the country that are experiencing you know, horrific hurricanes and flooding on a regular basis. So climate change is no longer some abstract concept. It's today, it's right in our backyards. And we also have an entire generation who is coming into the workforce and they expect to be able to live and work in sustainable environments. And I think that they are the ones who are inspiring and leading our buildings and our design community and hopefully our manufacturers to be able to create an environment that is produced and run in a way that helps them, helps future generations, and makes this a built environment that we can be really excited and proud to be a part of. It sounds like a lot of what is being unpacked and unfolded right here in this conversation is way less about checking a box and totally a culture thing. It's not a culture at a corporation. It's not a culture within a profession. It's a lifestyle. Karen just mentioned there is a generation of people coming into the world who expect this. When you say they expect it, when you say that this is what they will not only stand for but require, talk to me a little bit more about that and where you're seeing that just across the board from humans to 
today. There's actually data out there right now as we look at trends in workplace design that, and I hate to qualify or quantify groups of people, but you know, millennials and Gen Z will actually accept lower salary to go work for a company that shares their values over a company where that doesn't disclose their values. So I think we are seeing people choose their work environments with their conscience and with their values just as much as fringe benefits and things like that. There are tech companies in particular that have sustainability initiatives. And so to be a manufacturer that sells products that go into their buildings, you have to fill out forms that verify your sustainability as a company or that you are a just company. And I think that that is their way of answering the needs and the requirements of their employees. And we need to be aware of this and be at the forefront. All of the conversation is also so valid and looking at things in a holistic way really is the only way that we can all survive for the long term and be happy with where we are. So all of those topics that coming out for like sustainable design, not just being one aspect of it, but like holistically. So those different aspects of the sustainable design came to our conversation often and a number of the lighting designers in the Boston area had multiple dialogue about how can we push this envelope with a lot of people around us and then have more ally with us so that we can actually talk to more broader community to manufacture to the clients to the architectural team this is what we believe so we wrote this pledge letter that is focused on all aspects of sustainable design including the better treatment for the environment and the well-being for the human just labels and the, the five bucket of pieces that um, AIA also calls out. But the holistic idea of doing that better practice is just really becoming new normal and we want to have more ally, more people doing that same. And uh, if you have chance, um, if any of the listeners have a chance to go to Mindful Material to see the pledge, please go see and then read the letter that the lighting designers wrote to the manufacturer, what we are demanding it, what we are believing it. And please sign the letter and so that we can actually make the voice bigger and also like being heard more. And that's going to actually make change, I believe. I want to just circle back to the earlier point with looking at the new generation coming into the workforce. That's something that is very meaningful to me as well, to be able to have that kind of opportunity. For me personally, a couple years back, I was spending some time reflecting on what my personal values are and not not just what my values are, but what I believe my values are and then what are my actual practiced values. I realized there's a big discrepancy between the two, you know, and like I say, I, I like care about the earth and I want to preserve this for future generations. And But, you know, why do I have 10 bottles of cleaning supplies under my sink? Like, why am I addicted to all of these brands that I don't even know how I came in to know them, you know? So I started kind of combing through my personal life, looking at how I could align what I say I believe in more with my actual practice values. And then that translated into, okay, well, I've cleaned up my home life. Like, what about my work life, you know, like how, where is there room for this in the work environment? And so to have an employer that welcomes that, encourages that and allows you to put meaning behind your words and really does mean something. So that's something I think a lot of us are thinking about. I think it goes without saying that it's very easy to talk about anything in life. It's very easy to feel good in a moment, get a hit of dopamine, get excited 
and then get totally broken down and, and back into the trenches, right? Whether it's like a parent loving their child and then the kid screaming for four hours, whether or not it's design practices and having good initiatives, but then, you know, so many other things come to play. Like, let's just name off a few price, lead time, ability to procure things, supply chain issues. It goes on and on and on and on. I want to bring it very back to the beginning. It's sustainability isn't just sustainability. It's a way of life. It's a way of living. It's a way of how we think about what we do for global warming. It's a global culture that has absolutely nothing to do with the built environment and lighting and everything to do with people and what we believe in and really how we want to keep this earth safe, how we want to be able to leave the planet better off than we found it. Because right now we're kind of in a downward spiral, right? I mean, fire season is fire season. Hurricanes are huge. There's so much that's going on in the world right now. How does that all tie back to our little world, our tiny little world of design and the built environment? environment and how I know we talked about the petition earlier, but you know, what are the other things that we can as a community do tomorrow that while aren't going to make a huge impact, help us all get in gear? I'm a big believer in the butterfly effect that you make one small movement and you make an impact because it impacts others. When we first started talking about sustainability, as you all know, we were rather disappointed at the lack of interest. It was rather crestfallen, but it didn't stop us. We kept doing it. We kept trying to get better at it. We kept asking hard questions about what does it mean to be a sustainable manufacturer? And I think that now we're finding designers, architects, other manufacturers who in their own way each found a small moment. And I think that collectively we can make a big difference. And I think by getting the word out and spreading awareness, thank you for including us in this podcast because I of think course. this is a great way to start getting this message out. What's up, lighting people? <laughs> so I think that this is an opportunity for us to spread the word. And I think that both Jane and I are very ready to be evangelists for this and to share what we've learned with other manufacturers to encourage them to adopt sustainable practices to help them find, figure out it's not that hard. You just have to set your mind on it. And then I think that, you know, we can make a greater difference each through small steps, that we have to believe in it, that we adopt it personally. We become educators, as Reiko said, we spread that information out and we bring clients along with us in that journey. And that we collectively, we have an incredibly brilliant number of people in the lighting industry. And if they see this as a pathway to do good and do better and do well and make money at it, they'll jump on it. I just want to touch on money real quick because it kind of all boils down to that at the end of the day. We're all in the business of selling a service or a product, providing something into the built environment. And you mentioned earlier, sustainability doesn't have to cost anymore. It doesn't have to come at a premium, but what it can do is offer so much more than just quote, something better. It can truly play into people, to culture, to how we interact on a day-to-day -day basis. When we look at that very vast, uh, general broad statement that I'm sure could have holes poked in it all day long, the reality is just start small. Just work with something a little bit. Just say, you know, I have two decisions to make. Both reams of paper for the office are within 10 cents of each other, but one does come from one place and one does come from the other. It's taking the little bit of extra effort, no matter who you are, or what you do, to start to incorporate little things to rebuild that culture, or maybe I should say build it for the first time in our industry.
I think that the incremental steps are important. You know, it's easy, it's really even not that expensive to have a fixture without a PVC feed right now. You know, that is just, you just have to source it, make it happen, make it standard. But I also believe we can't be afraid as an industry to tackle the impossible problems, what feel impossible right now. And so we can see, and we've talked about this, that the average lifetime of an interior space is five to seven years. The average lifetime of a K through 12 classroom in most of America is 30 years. They can't afford, they're still lighting from 1976 in a lot of Bay Area classrooms right now. And they it simply, sucks. And it's really bad. It's really bad. So here you have all of this material that is going to get pulled out of a building. Is there a way we can repair, refinish, get it to the community that needs it? I don't have that solution. I have that vision. I have that idea, it seems just it seems so possible but we have to work together as an industry to kind of figure out how to make that happen how to rethink about procurement for public works in a way that reuses these materials that are going to have a lifetime of 30 to 40 years i think that's the one thing that's super unique about design and construction specification construction built environments. You mentioned a tenant space can turn over every five to seven years, but the building stands for a hundred. I know that so often the world has been trained to just buy consumer goods and be attached to the lowest price or the quickest thing or anything else. That's a culture thing. That's the world we live in. We live in a world of instant gratification, but mindful and thoughtful design is not only important, rather it's required because things do need to last 30 years. And that's a super important thing to consider in this entire conversation. And to add to that, the cost portion of what is driving it. Right now, it is really hard to find products that meets material transparency requirements, even just to even get to the declare label of just disclosing the materials. But what we as a specifier could start doing it is we can ask for those labels for one or two products that is the large quantity items within the project and asking manufacturers, can you provide material transparency labels upon the awarding of the project? For the large quantity fixtures, often we get the answer as yes, because it's the you know, very first step of disclosing the information. Anybody can do it they might find something that they didn't want to see it in their material, but that's part of the good process going forward. But as a specifier to push this needle forward, asking one or two large quantity fixtures, that's probably going to be very, very small cost for the product. Uh, for the one fixtures to have the labels, that could mean a lot to the project as a volume. And also that's gonna be a huge learning experience for the manufacturers to do their roadmap for so many years to come. So I think that can be a good addition. I think Jane touched on the issue of end of life or creating new life for fixtures. One of the things that we have to be mindful of is we have a very complex lighting industry and we have a lot of players. So what we need to do is also- Is go to Vegas and let the house win. <laughs> General contractors, electrical contractors, distributors, rep agencies, the greater design community, as well as manufacturers, that we all need to get on board on this. And I think that we have a very large community that we need to tap into to be able to look for opportunities to reduce our overall carbon footprint as an industry. I think also this panel being convened for this event in a lot of ways is a great first step. I can say that this is the first time I've been on a panel with manufacturers 
and designers. And I think cutting across the industry is the only real way to advance change. We see that and there are organizations out there that have driven change by getting full industry buy-in. U.S. Green Building Council a long time ago was one of the early initiators of that. But even right now, the Carbon Leadership Forum, you don't have to be an architect or a designer to be a member. It's those that are interested in pursuing and pushing this farther. So I think it's super important to continue having these conversations between the design community and the manufacturing community, and then all of those groups in between, those need to be brought to the table too. It takes a village, right? It's a culture, it's a process. The butterfly effect, small things, not being afraid of the big challenges. These are all things that are super, super important to not only get rid of the buzzword sustainability, but to truly rethink what this matters. This has been an absolutely incredible conversation. It's only just, you know, over four and a half hours long right now in our heads because we could continue to talk on this. I know that there's so much more to say here. If people want to continue this with you, if they want to get in touch with you, how can everybody get in touch with everyone here today? So this is John again from Perkins and Will, and I'm happy to continue this conversation with anybody who wants to talk about sustainability, email john.pendorf at perkinswill.com or through LinkedIn. And I'm Jane White, president of Fine Light, available at jwhite at finelight.com, 24 hours a day. My name is Melissa Mattis, and this is one of my favorite things to talk about, so I would love to continue the conversation. You can find my email on slateandfeinstein.com. Once again, this is Reiko Kagawa, and I love to carry the same conversation and make more alive with me. So you can find me at Reiko at Reiko, R-E-I-K-O at slateandfeinstein.com, or you can also find me in on the LinkedIn. This is Karen. First of all, I want to thank my fellow panelists. This has been the most wonderful conversation that we started several months ago, and it is a real privilege to be able to continue it here on the LightPod. I am open and eager to continue this conversation. So I'm Karen Jess Lindsley. You can find me at karen at lindsleylighting.com or on LinkedIn, and I hope to bring more people into this conversation. Karen, Rico, Melissa, Jane, John, thank you so, so, so much for sharing your passion for sustainability, for design, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say the power of light. There's a lot of cool stuff here. There's a lot of energy at this table. I think I just leave everybody with the fact that, you know, if one person says something, there's probably 10 more people out there thinking about it. You five or 50 people that are thinking about this. And if we get 50 people to talk about it, that multiplier would accelerate very, very fast. Hang in there. Have fun at Arclight. See you in Boston. See you in DC. See you in California. Come to Denver. Visit us anytime. We'll talk to you soon. See you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Light Pod. If you enjoyed it, do me a favor and click that like, follow, or subscribe button. That's the best way to never miss another episode where we talk to people about all things lighting who have inspirational and thought-provoking conversations to share. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.